This is a HeadGum Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to this BGM Podcast Extra of DragonCon 2017. Dragon Con that takes place every year in September on Labor Day weekend in Atlanta, Georgia. BGN was there to represent. If you have not seen our hashtag, you need to check it out. BGN Dragon Con. But for now, I want you to listen to this fantastic BGN Podcast Extra episode. This features the following guests. Kelly Sue DeConnick, Richard Garriott and Star Long, and Alex Kingston. So we've got a star-studded episode for you, and I hope you enjoy every last bit of it. These interviews feature BGN hosts Mel, Ty, and Crystal. Enjoy! Kelly Sue DeConnick is a writer and editor known for her adaptations into English language of many manga from Tokyo Pop and Viz, as well as writing for Marvel's Captain Marvel series, and also Pretty Deadly. She's currently writing Bitch Planet over at Image. First off, thank you so much for meeting with us. Thank you for being interested in chatting with me. (laughs) Well, we had so much fun the last time, so I had to come back. So I'm going to read my question because I'm very nervous. (laughs) So um, from Carol Core to the popularity of the non-compliant tattoos, your work tends to attract a very supportive fan base. So how does that make you feel to know your work resonates with so many, especially young women? Uh, Humbled, uh, uh, lucky, uh, supported, loved. Um, uh, I... Trying to, I'm not trying to waste our time. I'm trying to articulate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, I have been very supportive, um, and uh, and I have been very trusted, um, and I try not to take that lightly, um, and um, and not to take it for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think, I mean, the truth of our industry is everybody kind of has an expiration date on their forehead and like nobody can see their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I will have a limited period of time when I have this kind of support and this kind of platform. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I don't know how long that time will be. Um, and... Um, I'm trying to learn from it as much as I can and, and uh, contribute as much as I can in that time, whatever, however much time that may be. Okay. So piggybacking onto that, um, how do you think writing for Bitch Planet has either stretched or improved your writing style? Um, satire is very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, my, my, my favorite, one of my favorite films, I don't, I don't, you could, I don't know if that I, my favorite film I usually say is um, 
all that jazz. Um, <laughs> so good. Um, but one of my favorite films is Robocop, the 1987 mm-hmm. Robocop. I think it's 87. And um, uh, Robocop is this mean, funny, over the top political satire um, that is then balanced with this very comic booky, very sentimentalist heart. Um, uh, the character uh, of Alex and his relationship to his um, son and the hero on television that he's mm-hmm. trying, you know, he wants to be, and how Robocop sort of sort of remembers that. And so this, this Ro- Robocop kind of thinks of himself as this ideal hero, you mm-hmm. know. Um, um, and with Bits Planet, we're very much trying to do that same thing, mm-hmm. we're trying to balance this over the top, mean, funny, nasty satire with. Um, relationships that are very sentimental and and you know a, a, a little sappy, honestly. But mm-hmm. but that sappiness is 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 allowed because of the satire. Do, mm-hmm. do you understand what yeah. I mean? Um, uh, but it is a difficult balancing act. And what we've learned, particularly in the pitch process with um, the triple feature anthology, is that. Our intention was is not reading for everyone. There, people were pitching stories for the book based on what they perceived the tone of the book to be, the mm-hmm. main title of the book, and um, and so in, in the beginning, at least, a lot of the pitches we were getting were very dark mm-hmm. and bleak and humorless, and um, uh, and we were just like. This is not what we are making. <laughs> this is a comedy, you guys. It's a mad comedy, but it's a comedy. <laughs> you know? And um, so that was really, really informative. Um, and we've kind of had to rethink our approach a little bit. And mm-hmm. we'll see how the, I mean, the plot's not going to change, but we'll see how the tone changes as we go. Okay. So how you were describing Robocop feels kind of like um, our current political situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so do you find yourself feeling inspired by that or just completely ignoring it when you're writing new plots? I can't ignore it. I can't even ignore it when I'm making dinner. You know, <laughs> I, I, um, I, it, it, I don't think I'm directly, I mean, I don't think I'm directly taking plot mm-hmm. from it. That said, we're calling the third arc fake news because how can we not, mm-hmm. you know? Um, uh, it kind of dovetails with what we were doing and it's so, and I'm so furious. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, and look, I mean, it's, it's, this is our role as artists. This is what we're supposed to do, <coughs> you know? We're mm-hmm. not supposed to be apolitical. Um, people who think, People are like, well, I write the comics. Get, get your politics out of my comics. Like, have you ever read a comic book? <laughs> like, I wonder the same thing yeah, like, all the time. Like, you, what are they reading? Because it's not Superman what I'm reading. Is, is a social justice warrior, you know? Um, <laughs> uh, and, like, uh, 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 like the, the, when I was a kid, comics were not political. When you were a kid, you were an idiot, and you didn't know what you were reading. <laughs> exactly. Because the comics of the 1970s were incredible political of the 80s I mean Cap was out there punching Nazis they've always been political if what you read were pouches and haircuts in the 1990s yes those were apolitical yeah Um, that's true but then we could actually everything is political I'm sorry you know um, (laughs) 
and, and it just like oh, fuck it don't buy my book you know um so angry for no reason yeah if you don't like it, don't buy it <laughs> problem solved you don't like my twitter feed don't read it <laughs> But you know what? That would be so hard for them because who are they going to criticize? Well, mm. Okay, so. Wow, that was 10 minutes. Oh, okay. All right. (laughs) So, is there a character or um, a specific moment in Bitch Planet that hit especially home for you? Val and I joke that uh, he's like, Jesus, we beat up on Whitney a lot. And uh, I'm like, yeah, because she's my white guilt. Um, so Whitney gets her ass kicked all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, <coughs> I think Whitney's the most uncomfortable character for me because she's the character that is the there but for the grace of God. You mm-hmm. know, like she ha- she has that that well, you know. If you just play by the rules and you're the best girl, mm-hmm. you know, like it's, um, I'm not like other girls and all of that, you know, like, like it, she's, she's a tough one. She's, mm-hmm. uh, her, her, her blindness is, uh, is, a, is painful for me. But I can't keep. I can't stop poking at it. You know. Um, so I, I think probably Whitney, um, the one Penny's everyone's favorite. Um, yeah. Um, I think we all love Penny, and I was telling one of the other interviewers that it's 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 shocking to me when we when we made Penny. I expected. I expected Penny to have. A effect have an effect um, uh, on people of size. I expected mm-hmm. Penny to to have that. Uh, uh, I'm gonna wrap it up real quick. Um, uh, I, I expected Penny to to um, have something to say in in in, in her existence and her mm-hmm. in her representation and, and then in her act of defiance and loving herself right yeah um, I expected that I have not expected how the same message of acceptance and and love that Penny brings I have not expected the breadth of people that she has had that effect on because she's not a character we see very often at she's all she's not at all she's not at all but like uh uh uh, uh white boys with tears in their eyes uh because they <laughs> identify with Penny. uh did not see that coming i did not see that coming either um, and that's neat um so so you can relate to anyone uh, it's uh, not amazing look at that <laughs> as though you cross-identified. Yeah. 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 All right, Ben. Thank you so much. Richard Lord British Garriott is a pioneering video game developer with over 40 years of game development under his belt. He created the genre, defining Ultima series of games and the game company Origin Systems, which also produced Wing Commander, another classic game series. He coined the term massively multiplayer online role-playing game. 
otherwise known as MMORPG, and is one of the key minds behind many of the conventions that us gamers take for granted. Star Long is Garriott's longtime collaborator. He is the former director of Ultima Online, the first MMORPG. He also executive produced educational games for the Walt Disney Company. Their latest project out of Garriott's new studio, Portalarium, is Shroud of the Avatar, a crowd-funded, selective, multiplayer RPG that allows players to craft the specific role-playing experience they want. Right, you talked a bit about um, you're very busy this con um, <laughs> because you're, you have so many different in, um, interests um, and expertise. Um, I was just wondering, is there anything about Dragon Con and the Dragon Con gaming community that sets it apart from anything else? Totally, if you ask me. So uh, I don't know if you know that I was actually the computer gaming guest of honor at Dragon Con One. So way, way back when it was in one hotel, a few rooms, and. Uh, Still seemed like a big deal because it, that was so early in the convention era that that still seemed like a pretty good sized convention for the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously, it was nothing compared to what it is now. But what remains unique about uh, DragonCon for me has to do with the fact that it's a nonprofit organized by the players and fans, not by some corporate entity that's here to make money out of the process. And that's true whether it's for uh, you know, if you think about, it, we, we go to things like E3, which you know, a professional organization, you know, event, but really the organizers that are for profit. Or if you go to a Comic Con, you know, it's again largely a fan community-based thing, but it's also done for profit. And so, Dragon Con has a different spirit to it that I think pervades every aspect of what goes on. I enjoy coming here because I enjoy seeing and meeting all the other guests in addition to the players and, and of, of the things that we do. So. Uh, I think it is still extremely unique in its feel and depth. That's for me. I don't know if you have you had been here long enough to have the. Well, it's my only my third time, so I haven't done it thirty times like you. So <laughs> you've done it ten times as much as me. But yeah, I, I agree. It has a similar. Uh, uh, it has a, a very sort of homegrown vibe to it, and a very connected feel, uh, and it and, and represents so many interests. But I think that's because it represents the people. Mm-hmm. You know, it represents everybody's interests. Right. You know, everything that that people want to do is represented. Mm-hmm. I am going to get on the... You know, and, I, and I just got done uh, with... Uh, uh, with I just did a, a, a... was on a panel about automatons, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and it just happens to be a personal interest. And I, I would go as a fan if I wasn't also a collector just because I, I am a fan. So, uh, uh, and that's what everybody's here to do. So it's mm-hmm. kind of a cool yeah. process. Is there um, anything else here at the convention that um, kind of speaks your, speaks to your interest outside of like the gaming world or whatever? Well, if you say, well, for me, in addition to automatons, I was what I was going to say up. I'm violating your outside of gaming a little bit, but mm-hmm. for example, right here in this hotel is a, a group that has this interactive event, kind of a. Star Trek style, uh, you know, uh, simulation deck, oh, yeah, yeah. Artemis, yeah. and uh, I only see them at Dragon Con. I, I don't actually know. They might do the con- convention circuit, as far as I know. Uh, but I'm, I really enjoy location-based entertainment. And if I had any job other than computer games, it might be doing location-based entertainment, uh, which is sort of what that is. Is it's uh, something that requires you know a bigger suite of localized hardware than most of us have in our homes or offices. And so uh, the fact that they're willing to bring it all here and set up you know a 
half a dozen to a dozen interconnected computers and have a really great interconnected simulation that we can all go sit down and experience together, I think is great. So, uh, you know, as a, as a player, uh, I love to go see those sort of things. In fact, as soon as we're done this, this uh, interview, I have to go quickly online and reserve my slot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, you, you stole mine because I would say Artemis too, like doing the, doing the Star Trek. I'm a huge Star Trek fan. Like, Same. always enjoyed Star Trek from the very beginning. Like, when I was in college, we used to have next generation viewing parties on Sunday night. Uh, we even we even had like a Star Trek Next Generation Twin Peaks costume viewing party where you had to dress up as either a Next Generation or a Twin Peaks character. So I love that. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I would say the, the Artemis. But you know, and, and I, I would say the other outside of video games, the space track of which he you know he's on like six panels over doing that as well. I would say that would be the other cool thing here, you know, which you don't, which is kind of a weird mashup with the gaming uh, and tabletop and cosplay. Yes, I have my space stuff on yeah, there, yeah, so that I, so. when I go from my medieval panels to exactly. my space panels, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, can, you can costume change. <laughs> costume, quick, two quick change. Heroes. Quick change yeah, of yeah. costume. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about Avatar. Um, all right, so as a person, I'm a gamer. I've been yep. gaming since I was a very, very little girl. Um, but I've also always been a console gamer. I've never been an, a PC gamer. Um, back in the day when it was like um, a thing, it was like it was a little bit too expensive for me. So it was kind of like the console was like the most affordable thing. Um, when MMOs started to grow and become a thing, um, I was like, "Ooh, this sounds really interesting." But it, it again, I just didn't know exactly know how. Now it's 2017. I'm interested. I want to get involved. I want to get plugged in. What advice would you give to someone who loves RPGs, has been doing RPGs for years and years and years, but they've never done the MMO experience? And mm. how would you kind of guide them into your game, for instance? Wow. So, uh, so first of all, for our game, Shroud of the Avatar is sort of an homage to the early PC uh, role-playing games that we did previously, the Ultima mm-hmm. series and Ultima Online. And... Uh, uh, and it's actually a bit of a hardcore game. So when you say it's a, a when you're a beginner moving across, I would also give you, put up some warning signs to just say it is not a uh, a simple game. It is a but what you get for your willingness to engage the complexity is you get something that's richer and deeper than probably any other game. Also, uh, and here's my contrast with with PC to console uh, as well, which is you know if, if to me where consoles excelled is the social experience on this side of the screen. Meaning, you know, your, your console is usually in the living room. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's multiplayer, it's usually multiplayer with the other people sitting with you in the living room. And you don't usually have a mouse and a keyboard. You have controllers that you pass around. Uh, and so that... Uh, uh, and, and usually a game is played in a session of play that is 30 minutes to an hour or two. You're not going to usually sit there for a half a day or longer playing one game. Right, so it's a short period uh, for most people, and uh, uh, and for PCs, you know, you're sitting more upright at a desk with a mouse and a keyboard. You're very close to the screen, mm-hmm. and if it's a multiplayer game, you're not playing with multiple people on this side of the keyboard. You're really playing through the screen with people on the other side, and it often takes longer to get into. You know, you have to create the character creation process often a little bit longer and deeper, uh, and the experiences they're created for you on the other side. Uh, are tend to be things that require you know a longer term investment, shall we say? Uh, but I think the rewards for that are great. I personally find that, especially for MMOs. If you're going to go into MMOs, I think PCs do MMOs better than consoles do. Uh, 
because of that nature of being so close to the screen and the, the, the computer is your teleporter into that other world. And, uh, and so my advice to someone like yourself who's saying, hey, I'm fresh to MMOs and I want to let's try to the Avatar looks interesting, uh, I would say that, you know, the good news is that it's a quality, it's a game with a very deep quality uh, existence, uh, you know, where, where most MMOs, role, most role-playing games are fundamentally about combat, and if you're not a combatant, you're really not going to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. Shroud of the Avatar has plenty of combat, but, it's, but that's uh, only one piece of it. There's also really deep role-playing in the areas of crafting. There's deep role-playing in homesteading, uh, deep uh, role-playing in being merchants within the game. Uh, and so uh, you will find uh, uh, you know, a, a huge diversity of opportunities for people to uh, you know, have rich lives in this world once you get past the initial complexity. Okay. And, and also for us, I mean, the good news for the long horizon for our game is we're built in an engine called Unity. And Unity allows you to be on multiple platforms. And so right now, we're, we're only PC, Mac, and Linux. But uh, that's just for episode one. We do plan for future episodes to move over to console because Unity supports all the consoles. It supports mobile. In fact, 75% of the games that you play on your phone are built in Unity. Um, and uh, we can compile on mobile. We can <coughs> compile on console. We just have to redesign a lot of the interface to work on a console. But we do plan to be there eventually. Um, also, I would say you know, for people who are, you know, you know, obviously we're going to advertise our own game because we think our own game is great. Uh, and I'll, I'll echo a lot of what Richard says that, you know, the living, the ability to live a virtual life in our game is amazing. Um, uh, you know, that is the reward for the, you know, the sort of old school complexity of it. Uh, but there are, there are actually, you know, in the last few years, there have been some amazing MMOs done in the console space, you know. In fact, done by former co-workers of ours. So Elder Scrolls Online is a great example. Um, those guys have done an amazing job on co- of, of bringing the MMO experience to console, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, simplifying a lot of what was previously complex while still being able to tell a story and automatically leveling other players and things like that. So, you know, and again, I'll, I always like to give them a shout out because a lot of them used to work with us and um, and, and it's also a great game. And it's also a great game. Yeah. So, so um, if you're on console and you don't have a PC, Elder Scrolls is great. Yeah, that, it's, that's funny because that's one of my favorite games. Is Elder Scrolls. Like, obviously not the online one, but the um, the single player experience. Yeah. And so. Well, then you are well prepared to yeah. make the leap. And, yeah. and you know, and that's one thing that our uh, one thing that our game has that other MMOs actually don't, which is we have the ability to play our games. Again. <clears throat> So you can you can actually have there's there's basically two modes of play to our game. There's uh, single player offline where you're playing the storyline and the sandbox, but you're playing by yourself offline. You don't have to connect to the internet, um, and you can follow the storyline and finish that, and then do uh, any sandboxy stuff you want and like build your castles and things like that. But then there's also the online, so you can log on and be with other players. But even in that, you can play by yourself if you wish. Just be logged on to the server so you can see. The buildings that other people have put up and interact with their merchants and things like that, but you still are like, kind of shy. I don't want to see other people, I just, but I just want to see what they're doing. Um, or you can play in what we call friends mode, where it's just you and your party of friends. Uh, or you can play in open multiplayer, which is what is more like a traditional, massively multiplayer. But everybody's playing on the same server, 
Um, so you don't ever have to worry about picking a server or anything like that. And so uh, that's one thing that, and we call that and we call that whole system selective multiplayer. So you get to choose how you want to play, which is a pretty unique aspect to our game. Yeah, I was re when I was reading about the game, that was one of the things that popped out at me, and, and you just explained it. I was that was one of my questions, like how do you differentiate that from like? Well, you know, and what's interesting too, just about that is, you know, we've been doing this. You know, he's been doing this for twenty five years, which is already. You know, it goes back to ancient history, but I've been doing this 35 years or almost 40 years, 40 years, which I'm really ancient history. And the advantage of being around so long is we've had the opportunity to help set some of the firsts of anything in the industry over and over again. Yeah. So, you know, uh, Ultima was one of the very first role playing games ever. It had some of the first 3D in it, it had the first uh, day night cycles in games, it had the first top down tile graphic views of, of a world. Uh, once we get around to Ultima Online, it's the first MMORPG. Before that, I actually missed one, which was the word Avatar comes from Ultima, mm -hmm. uh, which is obviously ubiquitous. Uh, uh, shards, which is really means the, the concept of server sets, that you had to choose one. We called it a shard because we, we were talking about splintering reality because we, we were frankly disappointed we had to make multiple servers. Because uh, <laughs> we, we were so successful, we had to make multiple servers, which, mm -hmm. but fictionally that was a violation. Uh, so anyway, all, all these different kinds of terms. And we think that selective multiplayer is a natural next step technologically. We, we always try to have at least one major technological innovation and one major kind of uh, story theme or advancement that we're trying to do. And selective multiplayer was one of the key technological ones. Can I just say y'all are good interviewees because you're like answering like three and four of my questions. Like, <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> All right, excellent. You're doing such a great job at this. Um, okay, so speaking of what you were just saying, like some of the very first um, advents of some of these things that we take for granted today came from you guys. And do you feel, is that feel like a pressure that you always have to be inventive? Or do you feel like kind of relaxed, like I've made my space in this, like I, I've. Well, uh, so I would put somewhere, in, I, would, I would neither pick, I wouldn't pick either one of those extremes. Okay. So uh, uh, definitely not the, hey, we've been there, done that, so now we can <laughs> relax. That's definitely, we're far from that, sadly. Yeah. I wish that that was the way there was. Uh, but, uh, uh, but I actually think that, that that drive is what allows us to continue to be successful. The fact that we, we only feel good about what we're building when we have found that hook. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, until we found that hook, we're not settled that we're making the right game. Uh, and, uh, you know, and it may be later in our careers that we said we, you know, we didn't articulate it as the hook. You just were going like, you know, if you look at the early Ultimas, they were... Well, what, how can I be? How can I do better than that? You know, or I've learned enough. I've learned so much about right from writing that one that I now know I could do way better if I just threw it all away and started over. And you know, now that I've learned assembly language, or now that I've now that PCs exist, or now that CD-ROM exists, or now that you know the internet exists, or now that you know each of these new advancements, hardware-wise, allows us to take on some new challenge. Yeah, I, I, for me, it's always been uh, I always want to do something that's challenging. Like I. I, I I get really bored if something isn't really hard, which is really perverse, I think. Like, I, I, I have to do something that, it doesn't have to be uh, the first, but it has to be really challenging or difficult, or I have to be learning, you know, and I have to be learning some new skill or new, you know, so like one of the, one of the aspects of, uh, of our game is it, one half is, well, things like the selected multiplayer, but the other half is like how we make the game, you know? And so, you know, we're crap. So I had to learn all about crowdfunding. 
I had to learn about this sort of open development model where we're super transparent with the users and doing feedback and iteration and things like that. And so um, getting to do new things like that, I find super exciting. I mean, they're super hard because you're kind of inventing while you're doing it. Like with Ultima Online, you know, we had to, uh, like the idea of having an external facing website. You know, the World Wide Web had just launched in 1995, right? And so we, and we launched UO in 97. And so the idea that you would put a website up that people would go to and like register at, like, and have an account, that was a new thing. Like we had to invent that or have a registration code that represented value. Like there was a unique string of numbers that represented, hey, 30 days, that was 30, 30 days, days of time. that had a monetary value. That was a new thing. No one had ever done that before. And like, that's all stuff that everyone was like, oh yeah, sure, like that code even, that represents. Even when it comes value. to staffing, you know, one of the stories I like to tell is uh, when we went to my brother who was the president of the company at the time, we said, hey, we want to hire somebody in community management. And this is before the game was done, right? He's like, community management, what does this person do? And they go like, well, you know, they, they talk to the players. Like, we're like, well, the game's not even out. Well, I said, well, yeah, well, we already have fans and players, and they need to know what's going on. And, you know, like, what's the ROI? You know, what, what value? What's the, how can you calculate their value for being on the bottom line? We're going, like, we can't. But, you know, <laughs> but we're telling you you're going to need them. Yeah. And so we, you know, that we hired the first person whose job title was community management. And uh, now, of course, every, no MMO would for sure start without uh, having that early on in the process. But, you know, we had to cross all those thresholds ourselves. Did you get that idea from um, like D and D, like having like a person that runs the game, like or or no? It was just it just made sense. Just mostly just made sense. Well, uh, and I think we had seen it happening in uh, things like Muds and Moose and and other internet communities where they didn't have a formal, no one had a formal job title for that at that time yet, but there were people who were doing that function. And so we had watched it organically happen, and we just sort of codified it. How many patents do y'all, do you know? Zero. No? Zero. You know, and what's interesting, too, is um, we've discussed it many times. And in fact, even Selective Multiplayer, we've discussed, you know, whether we should you know, file for that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, we, we've, we've actually, we've, we've felt that the speed of development and the journey we're on and continuing to develop is really our best protection of our best uh, you know opportunity we've uh, at least so far never elected to do it yeah. the, the closest we ever came was actually the, the word avatar was actually a trademark of origin uh after ultima 4 and then when we sold to electronic arts uh five or six years later other companies started trying to use it but not just one other company everybody everybody, yeah. everybody tried to use it and ea made the calculus at that point they're going like you know to defend it we'd have to basically sue everybody mm -hmm. and they said look for one word <laughs> You know, it's probably not worth it, and so they actually gave up the word avatar. But for a while, I owned it. Yeah, and that is so interesting. You never think about that. You never think about like it's, it's the trouble of actually defending a thing like that. Well, and and in some ways, you know, uh, especially in software, uh, patents are not don't actually help the industry as a whole. You know, I mean, they're really uh, patents are more of a self defense mechanism in case someone comes after you. Patent trolls mainly. Mm -hmm. um, and so you only file really patents in self-defense. And so like we, with Ultima Online, we discussed filing patents for like, because it was like the first graphical MMO with uh, how dynamic player housing, like housing you could put anywhere. It, like, you know, the, like those codes that defined 
uh, 30 days of value. That was a new thing that we, and we could have patented those. And, and EA did the same calculus of like, well, then we'd have to defend them. Yeah. And like, and so it's not worth it. And so, you know, and patents don't, and if you are aggressively defending them, then, then anyone else who's trying to do something similar can't, and then the industry doesn't advance. It, because it people, aren't, part, people aren't iterating on those ideas and making cool new stuff out of them. Yeah. Um, I have so many things to ask, but it's running late, so let me pick the important yeah. ones. Um, okay, so you, talk, you talked a bit about your game does a ton of different things. Um, how do you how do you work with the balance? How do you make sure the balance and the pacing is right, or is that something you don't worry about? No, no, we do. We, we, well, yeah, if, if the balance and pacing isn't right, then you know people either get frustrated because they can't get far enough, or get bored because it's yeah. all too easy. So that's uh, imperative. But the way we, we sort of sit down, and uh, you know, I'm a big fan of a guy named Richard Bartle from England, who I, I only met for the first time uh, recently, actually at a, at, a, at a gaming event in Spain, and. Uh, uh, he has something called the Bartles Four Player Types. He basically said, if you look at people in a community, and this really transcends games, but uh, if he was writing it for games, he said, you know, there's the explorers that want to go in a game and kind of see everything there is to see. There's the achievers in the game who want to be number one at, as you know, one, in one or many different calculuses. There's the role players in the game who just want to sit around and put on costumes and live with it, live and breathe it in the world. Uh, and then there's the group that he he called the PKers. I really call them more broadly dissidents, the people who get their fun out of causing trouble. That's really, that really is their method of having fun. And uh, just like trolls, internet trolls of all kind, you know, the more you try to fight them, the more fun they're having. And so, uh, and so you actually perpetuate them by trying to exclude them. And so it's actually better to figure out how to let them have fun, but not at other people's expense. And so, uh, and so with our game, uh, you know, we sit back, we think about all the different kinds of players who might show up, and we try to make sure they're interdependent. And, uh, you know, UO had some you know, great initial examples that, at least from my mind, we stumbled into. Maybe you or Raph or others thought of this more uh, uh, proactively than I did, but I at least saw it unfold, uh, which was, you know, we, we would, uh, of course, have adventurers who'd uh, have equipment that they would need to go buy, uh, swords and shields and such, but we also made it to where it would wear out. And that meant that they needed to go to an armorer, an armorer or a blacksmith to, you know, go have that stuff repaired or buy new, better stuff. Well, the blacksmith, however, so that's a role. A role-playing role is to be the blacksmith. But that blacksmith, to make new gear, also had to have raw materials. They had to have coal for heat. They had to, have, uh, they had to be able to smelt down uh, uh, ore. Uh, they had to have a variety of molds and hammers and all these other tools. And so those supplies often meant that people had to go to the dungeons to kind of dig up and mine out those raw materials. So there were miners. So another role to play was to be a miner. But if you're going to be a miner carrying raw resources in and out of town, you need protection. And that protection was often by hiring the fighters. And you'll notice that it just made a loop. And so you have three different states, each of which sort of rock, paper, scissors wise, you know, depends upon someone else. And so now we do that very purposefully. We now sit back and we say, okay, well, you know, what is... What's going to, why is it going to be fun for this person? We were actually at dinner last night discussing the way we're managing the player economy or some, some sweeping changes we think we need to make to really get it, you know, to, to really drive people to trade uh, by uh, either adding or subtracting big pieces out of the game. So um, even though we're in the, you know, we're 80% done with this game, we still, uh, that's, in fact, uh, I'm going off topic of your question, I know, but uh, I've often said that you know the 80% the of the quality of a game goes in in the last 20% of the time. 
And it's when you do big things like this, once the whole game sort of works, <coughs> you can look at it and go, it's not balanced. It's not fun. The pacing is, is too, you know, it's, it's too hard. It's too challenging or it's too boring. And you go, okay, well, wow, if it's, if it's too challenging because it's too complex and can't, people can't figure out, how are you going to hold people's hand to get them through that? Or how are you going to give them some easier things to do for as long as they need before you force them to face this tougher challenge? Yeah, and I think for us, too, because we are very intentionally old school, you know, so we, we started out very much of, like, we are not going to hold your hand at all. We are literally going to throw you naked in the woods with a stick, and you're going to fight wolves, and they're going to tear your throat out, and good luck. See ya. And, uh, and, and isn't this fun? <laughs> um, and uh, rightly so, you know, the feedback was like, no, this is terrible. This is not fun. Like, like you know, the last 20 years have been a lot of innovation in, like, guiding players to their destinations. And, and, and arguably some of the pendulum has, uh, at least will argue that some of the pendulum has swung a little too far. Like, literally there are some games where you can literally put your character on autopilot. Like, like when they go on, uh, is it, oh, I don't want to name a name, but because uh, I don't want to diss on them. But there's literally, I, there is at least one MMO that I know of that literally once you pick, like you select the quest to go on, you can you can click auto and the character will like get on their horse and go to the destination and you don't have to like, you don't have to control it at all. Mm-hmm. Like it just goes automatically. Like it's more than the, the exclamation point. It just goes there. Yeah. And, uh, and so I think that's pendulum has swung too far, but but we so, we, so maybe, we maybe yeah. we initially swung too back far right. back of the way, and now we're finding the middle ground. Right, and yeah. so now and now we're doing things like okay, well, important things will now appear on your compass. You know, uh, we will like NPCs that have stuff for you. We're not going to go as far as doing exclamation point over the head, but they're no way to try you, to get your attention and get your attention and go because <laughs> hey, it's more fictional. Come, come a, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. it's more immersive that way. But they are going to get your attention. Yeah, um, uh, and so. And, and we're and we're heavier handed of that at the beginning of the game, and we're much more guided at the beginning of the game. And slowly, we loosen the reins a little bit, so you have to figure out more and more as you get further and further. And so, uh, but we didn't do any of that at the beginning. And so that's the kind of balance that we have. And to people are like freaking out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, oh God, there's so many things I want to ask about the game in particular, but I do want to kind of. This we is. Got, a, we still got time. You still have ten minutes. You got fine. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. We got um, it. good. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about, um, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to this and then go back to the specific game question I had. But um, one of the things, Richard, I saw you um, talking a bit about diversity in games and your desire for it, even going so far as to like critiquing your own, you know, performance in that. Um, how do you, with this game, um, help to make it a safe and happy environment for anybody? Oh, fa- fantastic question. You know, so what's interesting is... Uh, if you go back at the early Ultimas, Ultima 3, I believe it was, so y- your character was stick figures, right? It was art I drew. So it was the, the, your, you couldn't tell if that stick figure was a male or a female even. And so, I, frankly, as a joke, I, I mean, I don't think I was trying to be uh, forward-thinking anyway, but when you developed your character, you could actually say male, female, or other. And I just thought, ha-ha, funny, other. But a lot of other people go like, wow, how progressive Richard is being to allow us to have non-binary you know, uh, decisions for, for even things like gender. Uh, and, and, I, and, and I wish I and, but I have to admit it, it, it wasn't uh, forward thinking. But as you know, games in general have, the gamers in general, uh, are a very welcoming and diverse community. The players, 
but I would actually say game developers have not been so forward, uh, purposely forward. Uh, and part of it is because the developers are, st- you know, our develop even our team, we're you know eighty percent male, uh, and uh, and probably eighty percent white male, you know, on our on our team, and that create even when you are trying to be more progressive, it is I think you know maybe this is a rationalization or an, ex- or an excuse, but I, I remember when I can't remember if it was a player that mentioned it or somebody on our team mentioned it, we looked up or he mentioned it. We noticed that you know we have a team of artists who go build the characters in the game, and if they're making a guard and they only are going to make one, statistically they will make a male guard, a white male guard. Mm-hmm. And and then we noticed that in the bar, the bartender was a male, but the person walking around between the tables was a female. Mm-hmm. And we thought, and as soon as we realized, and we did this up and down through the whole game, and it wasn't, it wasn't there was no plan. I mean, we just sort of were evolving our way there, but of course. It is wrong, uh, but at least, uh, and if not excusable, at least you can understand how we got there based upon the team we have. And so we then had to circle back and go, no, 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 this is no good. You know, we're this is not what we intend. And then we had to go back, and we're now much more. As soon as we realized we could fall into that trap, mm-hmm. even after all these years, uh, we're now much more diligent about making sure that uh, the, the diversity shows up in the characters in our game. And every way, and I think actually the default when yeah. you start your character. Yeah, and so that, that and that's kind of where I, I I I started. I said like let's look at the very beginning of the game, and and actually if you look at a lot of character creation systems, when you start up a character creator, and this is a test I like to do, do with a lot of games, like what's the default for a character creator? And it's the same thing. The default for a lot of character creators is a white male. Mm-hmm. And I was like. Let's flip that, and so now for us, the default is is a woman of color, um, and that's like just a and it, and and it's just data. It's like a super simple change. Like, and why not? Why not just make that the default? Um, and then and then and the other thing we've done is like, and then with guards, like, why does why do all the guards have to be male? And why do all the and so we just make it so like just a random mix of genders and and skin tones for all the guards in the cities, and and you think okay, it's just guards in the cities, but that's one of the things, like, in a, in a, when you walk into a medieval town, you always see guards walking around, right? So it's one of the most often seen NP, human NPCs that you see. And so making those be diverse gender and diverse skin tone is incredibly important because you see them more than any yeah. other NPCs. And, and, and I want to throw out one more thing just on, uh, on this broad issue you know one one of the things uh, one of the ultimates i'm most proud of was ultima 6 the subtitle of the game is called the false prophet uh and the cover of the game if you google it uh it shows uh, the avatar in this case blonde-headed white male uh bathed in heroic light with his chest firmly planted on the uh on the chest of a gargoyle with leathery wings claws fangs sunken cheeks and you know demonic looking uh, and uh, and the game begins with these gargoyles coming up from the bowels of the earth to kill all the villagers trying to hunt you down. You you the the avatar. The avatar yeah. Okay, and and so I set it up for you to go. Those are obviously the bad guys. I'm up. You know, this picture shows me as the good guy. So th- that must be the case. And so you off you go to dispatch the world of these wretched gargoyles. Well, you know, I'm a believer that. Uh, you know the, the reason why we have diversity problems in the world is because the 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 world uh, you know we we have societies that 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 uh, grew independent of each other 
uh, and weren't diverse, and now, uh, now that we're all finally mixing as we should, uh, you know, it's at least uh, historically, um, you know, you, you, can, you can understand at least how the fear of the unknown, when you at least didn't speak the same language and had differences of visual appearance, how you might be a little cautious of each other. Uh, and there were often culture wars, you know, between physical geographies and territories down through history. And so you can see how that stuff's been passed down, but it's all been taught, right? It's, all of these things are only things that we have told, parents have told their kids. But, but since none of it is true, I had to go, if I'm going to tell, tell a story about racism, I have to show that everyone can be racist. And what I mean by that is that that demon, that gargoyle, is only evil because we're all raised in... In imagery that says if you're red, leathery, winged with fangs and claws, you must be evil, right? And if I seal that with there's a conflict going on, then you know it's evil, right? I've given you all the clues to believe that they're evil. But in fact, in Ultima 6, the false prophet, they are not. As you go down to wipe them out, you realize that they have families and literature and architecture. And if you, go, if you bother to go like, uh, you know, I'm seeing little baby gargoyles. I'm not feeling that great about killing them. And then you go find their reading and writing, and you realize that you are the false prophet. They have a prophecy that says you will come down here and eradicate their species, which is what you are doing. Mm -hmm. And so you can either lose the game by committing genocide, or you can go, ah, I see, it's, uh, uh, I, am, I am fulfilling that prophecy. Yeah. Uh, maybe I should back off and, and, and think again about my own, you know, uh, my own closely held beliefs. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's very hard to do in gaming. But I think it's so, so very important, or at least it's a huge opportunity. If games can hold up a mirror to people and purposely challenge basically any closely held belief, and I don't care which side of any issue you're on, any issue that society struggles over, they usually struggle over for you know, some reasonable reason that it's not just hadn't been solved you know, a generation or two ago. And so if you hold up a mirror and say, hey, here's why either side would feel this way, uh, you can both be more forgiving of the people who fell into that trap, and for the people who fell into that trap, you can help them get out. Mm -hmm. um, oh, that was a very um, tense question. Um, or answer session. Okay, so um, when you talk about, okay, so you talk about intentionally with your art. Now, because you have players interacting online, how then do you run the game to, like, those people that mm. do want to, you know, the, the folks who are always like, I don't want to mix with anybody, I want to, uh, you know, how do you work with that? How do you deal with that? Well, so, I mean, we, we moderate, so, and we have a report function in the game, so, uh, and we have a basically a zero tolerance policy for anybody who uses any kind of abusive uh, language or activity towards people for for any reason for anything related to gender or race or anything like that if anyone acts out by that we I mean literally zero one strike you're out zero tolerance policy for that so permanently out yeah I mean they're, and, they're, and everybody knows that I mean so you know we, we think it's perfectly fine for people to role play that we're mad at each other like mm -hmm. how about you you know yeah, yeah. you're my mortal enemy okay fine yeah but, but, if, they, but if they bring religion or gender or anything like or race or anything like that someone can hit report and then that person's gone forever. And we also, you know, we also celebrate community diversity in the community. I mean, we 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 literally try to find opportunities to showcase that and and that could be of any type. Uh, and uh, uh, and what's interesting about that is as soon as you are 
not only tolerant of, but celebrating certain areas of, of diversity. I would say like, you know, uh, lifestyle diversity is you know, probably maybe one of the most politically charged in modern times. But we, we've just decided that that's worth fighting for, you know, that uh, uh, we, we don't think of it as a political issue. We think of it as a more morality issue that, uh, you know, that uh, celebrating and supporting diversity is the right side to be on. Yeah, so the L we have a very, like, uh, small but very active LGBT community in our game. So like we they they run events and we support them. Aww. So, yeah. Like in in real world or in the, in the game. game world. In, in the, the game, game world. world. Yeah. yeah. In the game world. And again, that's one of these things where you know they're they're you know I I can respect or if or at least understand that there are people who have closely held often religious beliefs that that, that is not attuned with. However, I think that that is uh, we just don't believe that should uh, that that. Uh, Lack of tolerance, as we see it, we don't allow in our game. Yeah. Uh, let's see. One. Okay. So here's here's a nice summation question. I think okay. um, you both have been in the in the um, industry for a very long time, and I was wondering. I was reading about how you both started, um, and um, Star, you didn't even really start in in it in terms of like gaming. You kind of just kind of almost fell into it. it was like yeah. um, a very charming story. Um, I wanted to know if there is something that, um, from back in those days when you were beginning, that you wish was still a thing now, and what would that thing be? And this is a question mm. for both of you. And um, and was there something about that early, those early days of game development that you wish was still a thing that just isn't? Well, I've got one. Yeah, you go first. You know, so... There was a period of time somewhere between uh, Ultima 7 and Ultima Online when the games were still small enough to where one modest team like ours now, about 30 people, could do everything. But there were no engines yet. So really everything that the game was, the team made from scratch. Uh, first of all, that, that's kind of cool that you, that you own every aspect of it. You know every byte in the machine and what it can do. Can do. And you combine that with this devotion we all had to perfection, which manifested it in a, in a good way and a bad way. The, the good manifestation was we would often all be there until the wee hours uh, and be punch drunk from coding and working all night. And we'd go into like the audio uh, the composer's suite with this nice sound room and we'd all like make up rap songs together and record them and you know, laugh at each other and stuff with these and, and make, have two o'clock in the morning barbecue you know, events out in the backyard. And so it was a, the camaraderie was something really great. The problem with that was is that that's sustainable when everybody's under the age of 25 and, uh, and is willing to volunteer this pretty abusive lifestyle uh, that it takes to, to pull that off. And doesn't really have families. And that's what I meant, and no one had families. It, that it, it's not practical to sustain it, but there was something magical about it uh, and nightmarish about it at the mm -hmm. same time. There was a recently, um, I forgot, one of the main, Polygon maybe, did an article talking about crunch and that, yeah. like, how, like, um, they were actually um, pro that. And there were some de developers who were like, that's really, like, harmful. Like, that's not something that... Right. We agree with the other side. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's harmful. Yeah. I mean, it's not sustainable. And th there are moments like that that are, I agree, that were that were. There's magical, memories that are great. But mm -hmm. but the long term is just... The I long term mean, cost. And it, doesn't make, and it doesn't make a better game. Yeah, I mean, it basically that, that that's the that's the most important yeah. part. The exactly. most important part is it does not make a better game. Yeah. It does not get it out sooner. It does not make it better. Yeah. It's actually better to let people go home and get some rest. Yeah, yeah, it is always. <laughs> it, right? yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's better to sleep. Um, 
I don't know. I, I, I would say it's not directly related to game, but I would say, uh, I mean, not directly related to development itself, but the thing I think that I miss is uh, two things, uh, arcades uh, and retail spaces, because uh, which oh I think goodness. that the loss of a physical space for gamers, like we don't have that anymore. Um, I mean, you have like board game stores, mm -hmm. but, and I, and I talked about this in my talk earlier today, and I think that's one of the things that needs to come back because there are so many games now, and one of the big problems with games is discoverability, and I think the only hope we have is for us to get a space back, a retail, a physical space, like board games have. Um, like, if, and it's, so if we can get a, I mean, I, that's what GameStop needs to be, but it's not. Uh, but we, we need an arcade slash retail space where we can gather and have a community and, 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 and have game nights and have land parties and, 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 and have a community in a physical space. And, and we used to have that, and we don't have it. Yeah, that just speaking right to my heart, I yeah. completely agree. In terms of arcades, like I've spent so many mm. weekends, and even after work, I was an yeah. adult going to arcades. Mm. Yeah, agree. Yeah. Completely. All right, I got it. Yeah, we got to go to ground yeah. and grab our next folks. That's yeah. all right. Yeah. You want me to go down? Yeah, yeah. you go down, and I'm gonna okay. give them Thank points. You so much. All right. Yeah, yeah of excellent. course, absolutely. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs>
I think the only one I've found so far is um, Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Are Made For Walking. <laughs> but, but hey, I could sing that. <laughs> so with uh, Jody Whitaker now being announced as the female first female doctor, was there any thought that they might bring you in for that role at all? Was it ever discussed? Did you throw it out there? Oh no, no, I never threw it out there. I mean, that would mean I would have married myself, which... That's legal in some states, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, uh, I, I love the fact that River is her own person. And, and she ultimately, I mean, she gave away all of her regenerations to save the Doctor. So that kind of, I don't think, could... Well, mind you, it's Doctor Who, anything can happen. Um, but I, I'm quite happy uh, for River to be um, a separate uh, spirit from the Doctor's spirit, because then it just gives more opportunity for them to have adventures together, as opposed to her having an adventure with herself. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, that's a bit inappropriate. <laughs> Somebody over there is going to have to leave. She's laughing so hard. <laughs> You've been a... Um, of your career, star of big series in America and big series in Britain. Yeah. Uh, what is the difference for you between the two styles, working on a show in Britain, working on a show in America? Uh, craft service. <laughs> <laughs> Hands down, craft service. Um, I liken, it's quite interesting actually, because I mean, you know, the BBC's been an institution for so long. Uh, not just in Britain, but across the world, really, in terms of um, uh, its production. And, um, uh, but um, the BBC uh, working day uh, tends to be a little bit similar to working on a, a low-budget independent movie here. So you, you're very aware of... Um, uh, the, the, in a way, the lack of, of resources when it comes to comforts. Um, so, for example, uh, filming in Cardiff on Doctor Who, uh, the trailers that we're all given um, are, are sort of like old caravans from the 1970s. Um, very, very sort of, you know, smelly, moldy carpets and um, not particularly a nice place actually to sit and relax. In fact, maybe that's the deliberate. <laughs> Somebody thought, mm, maybe that's the reason why. Um, and uh, certainly, I mean, my gosh, when I was doing ER or, or even Arrow, when it comes to sort of like craft service, you know, there's tables and food laden. And in fact, you have to learn not to go to craft service. Otherwise, sort of the pounds get put on. But um, there is no craft service in England. There's just um, at a certain time in the day, somebody will come with a tray and um, cups of tea and slightly sort of curled up sandwiches, if you're lucky, or some soggy biscuits. <laughs> and that's it. So yeah, craft service is, uh, is the difference. <laughs> I know this isn't your first Dragon Con, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on coming back and sort of the overall take on it, how it's different to other conventions and what oh. makes it special. Uh, Vic Dragon Con um, is uh, in a different league. Um, I, uh, I came here for the first time last year 
Um, and I flew in from Toronto. Um, I've been at um, the, the convention in Toronto. And so I didn't arrive until, gosh, it must have been about two in the morning uh, coming off that flight. And I just assumed that I would sort of get to the hotel and it would be all sort of just like quiet, silent. <laughs> maybe, maybe somebody going around with a vacuum cleaner, you know, ready for the next day. And I thought I had walked into a scene from Blade Runner. Uh, it was just like, I got out of the car and I was in this dystopian world with sort of just like crazy people in bondage and, and you know, and there, and, and there's a Chewbacca standing over there. And I was just like, what is this? It's mad but fantastic. Um, and I, I had such a good time last year. Um, I just, I was determined to come back. Um, and this time I'm actually, uh, I'm daring to, when, I'm, when my day is done, I'm daring to actually go out and um, do some people watching. Because that's the thing that when you're working behind a desk and doing photo ops all the time, you don't really get to see and experience the, the um, Dragon Con in the way that all of you do. Uh, and I, I'm just longing to just watch people and look at their costumes. And um, so I did a little bit of that last night, and um, I intend to do some more of that tonight. Will you be incognito while you're Absolutely. in costume? Absolutely. <laughs> 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 well, what's your favorite cosplay that you've seen? Um, oh, my, oh, my gosh. I mean, there were, uh, coming up the escalator yesterday, I was going up, and, and you know, people were coming, filtering down, and there were like 10 Roman legionaries sort of just coming down the escalators, all looking terribly serious, some on their cell phones. I just, I was like, oh my God, this is fabulous. And then there was some sort of very jittery, large mice, um, uh, kind of, they, they were brilliant, actually, because they had this whole kind of like movement down, and there were two of them, and they were just walking around doing this sort of strange jittering, and I was fascinated by that. You know, it was a whole performance, and they were in, in role, as it were, and they weren't going to drop that. Um, yesterday, there was a whole group, I and mean, I love this, because there are people that obviously get together, and they sort of they think of a film or sort of a theme and they all then contribute. I mean, there were a group of people who I think they were being the contents of an aquarium. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so there was somebody walking around and they were sort of just like a giant goldfish. But then there was a woman who was, um, I mean, there was Neptune and, you know, then there was another sort of like fishy woman and then there was somebody else who was like, I don't know, what they were, a starfish or something? <laughs> but, but they all walked around together as a group. Um, maybe they were a tide, you know, rock pool or something. I really don't know. But um, anything goes, doesn't it? I mean, it's just amazing. Amazing. Well, you know, Doctor Who fans have had a chance to see River kind of expand on her character in the Big Finish audios. Yeah. Um, I've listened to both volumes and I, you know, I love them so much and I think we really got to see a different side of River. Yeah. Um, so can you kind of speak a little bit more to how her characterization differs in the audios versus in the television series? Absolutely. Funnily enough, there are some fans who dress in River's clothes from the audio um, uh, recordings. So, th I mean, that's sort of like, oh my God, they are very, very um, uh, sort of like hardcore. <laughs> um, 
I love doing um, the Big Finish audio uh, um, stories because, first of all, I think they're actually um, very well written. And the, the writers absolutely, um, they take the show seriously, they want to keep what they're creating at the same sort of standard and level as the <coughs> stories that are on the, the television show. Um, and I think the production values are, ex are really extraordinary. Um, and they, they get, the writers get who we are. I mean, they're obviously massive fans themselves, but they, they sort of, they really are contributing to that world. And um, what I've enjoyed um, joining that, um, this company <coughs> is that I really get to time travel because I'm doing um, stories with Paul McGann, um, uh, with Colin Baker, um, Sylvester McCoy. You know, it's sort of like, it, it's endless. Um, I've got some more coming up, um, and I'm not gonna tell you who I'm gonna be doing those stories with. Um, but it, um, so it, it gives me as River the opportunity to sort of believe that she really has had relationships with all um, reincarnations or incarnations of the Doctor. Um, and we get, because it's, because uh, you're listening to it, everybody who, who listens to these stories creates that, their own version of whatever the world that we are, that the story is set in. They create their own vision of that in their head. So everybody's idea is, um, is gonna be a little different which I love because um, I think uh, rather than, in a way, radio dying, this is, um, this is keeping it alive, and I think that's super important. Uh, so um, I don't think, I mean, I really don't think River differ, differs to uh, how she's portrayed um, in television, precisely because they are so, um, uh, careful to stay true to all of the characters that have been created from the TV show. But uh, I love it. And actually, the food there is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. In fact, most actors say yes precisely because of the food. <laughs> Do you have a particular story that, uh, out of the big finish that is your favorite right now? Um, probably um, uh, oh God, what's it called? The um, I'm going like this because it's the clockwork. Uh, uh, it's the storyline with Paul McGann. Um, I can't remember now the, the title of it, but it's the, the clock, uh, something to do with the clock. <laughs> Time. To piggyback on that question about the big finish now, you actually surpassed Liz Slayton as working with the most doctors of any companion. Do you have a favorite doctor you worked with? Well, they're all the same, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> it's all the same person, the same spirit, just different um, physical um, incarnations, but ultimately they're the same. So um, I can't really answer that. <laughs> How is the preparation different for Big Finish audios as opposed to actually being on the television show? Oh, um, if truth be told, I mean, there isn't that much rehearsal when you're doing um, the, the television show. Uh, 
there's a lot of rehearsal for all of the technical stuff. So typically what happens is that um, prior to a scene being shot, um, if it's a scene that involves any kind of um, stunt or if it involves any kind of um, alien enemy or anything like that, or there's, there's um, uh, anything technical, they will spend ages sort of working on that and refining it and making sure it's all fine. And then it, they just say, you know, action, and then we have to wing it. <laughs> and um, uh, interestingly, uh, and I'm, I, I don't think it's a, a good thing, but it sort of seems to be the way television um, is going, or certainly on Doctor Who is the actors are in a funny sort of way, we're the last people to be considered. Um, everything else is the thing that ha is, carries the most importance in terms of people making sure that that's all gonna work. And I think it's actually, probably, it's not that we're neglected because we're not important. I think they just assume that we know exactly what we're gonna do and we're gonna do it perfectly. Um, but it can be a little frustrating sometimes because as an actor, you want to also be given the chance to just rehearse and try things out. And um, time is so limited, um, and you know, time is money. So as long as everything works technically fine, they'll then say, okay, we got it, let's move on. Whereas as an actor, you might want to go, you know, I'd like to try and do that and give it a different spin. Um, I, I wasn't, but, but you're not given that chance. Um, so that can be quite um, that can be quite frustrating. Uh, whereas um, with the big finish, you get into these glass booths and um, they're sort of arranged in a horseshoe shape, uh, and you can we can all see each other. Uh, so um, and you have cans on, so you can hear everybody as well, but you can only hear them through the cans. Um, and uh, there is absolutely no, there's one, there's one run through, we all just read um, the, uh, it goes by pages really, so it's like scenes, we, we record each scene individually, and a scene might last a page, it might last five pages, so you have to sort of stand there and you have to have your pages arranged so that you can read them without people hearing the, you know, the pages rustling or whatever, and, um, <coughs> We'll read once, and then they'll record. They'll record one, and then if there's any little slip-ups, or if they if they feel that somebody um, could interpret a line differently, or something like that, then they'll say, "Okay, let's go back and let's just pick up this section." And so you'll repeat that section. Um, the great thing is that uh, because you can see everybody, uh, we laugh a lot. I mean, we. Uh, 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 and I'm not sure actually whether they add like bloopers at the end of the um, the box sets and things, but certainly uh, there's there's a lot of laughter um, because you know we're watching one another sort of pretending to kiss or or you know there's always running there's always <laughs> down running and of course we're not allowed to run because then we'll sound like a herd of elephants and so. You know, there's whenever we're running, uh, I love to look because I, I see everybody just going. It's crazy. It's like you have no idea what actors get up to, really. 
projects do you have coming up? What, where can we see Alex Kingston next? Um, I actually just heard somebody um, told me here, I didn't know, that uh, the, um, the Canadian um, show Shoot the Messenger that I had done, uh, I guess it was two years ago we filmed it, um, that they, that um, it's just been um, uh, greenlit for another series, another, so that, that would be great, um, because that, that means that I'd be going back to work on that show and, and uh, expanding the character of the newspaper editor. Um, but I, um, I have just recently, uh, um, not not permanently relocated to England, but um, but I've moved back just for a little bit. Uh, so um, I'm hoping that um, uh, come the end of the summer that I'll start looking to do theatre work there for a bit. Um, which that's my first love, really. So um, and I did uh, you know a few years back I did Macbeth with Kenneth Branagh, and uh, that sort of just uh, kind of got all of those um, theatre juices bubbling and I'd love to go back on stage again for sure. Be in a dream role? I'd love to play Cleopatra. Mm. That's um, one of my dream roles I have to say. Can you talk about a scene that really touched you, whether it was during filming it or watching it back later? Uh, on Doctor Who? On Doctor Who, yes. Actually, I have to 